0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our special series, Life Lessons from Dr. Bob.
1: Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do
2: things in a funny, different way, a memorable way.
1: With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems.
2: On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says, that's where the windshields are. This is the one on top. And this is where you should pick it up.
1: And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bobs decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled,
2: Perseverance. When we hire people. We look at their resumes, and uh, when I look at executive resumes, we have an opening for senior VP of marketing. I'll look at that resume, and I'll write down next to each of that person's prior employments how many years he or she spent at that, and then I take an average. And if it's not five years, I toss the resume away. I don't even read it, okay? I just see how many years, how many years. And if it's not five or more, I throw it away. If it is five, then I look at it in the details, see if that person fits the job, and if I want to go to the next stage. So this is something that we are losing in our society, the understanding that it takes a fair amount of time to get anything done. To destroy something, you can do it in seconds. You can destroy a building. You can destroy a country probably in seconds. But to do something value-add, to build something, takes time. To build a career takes time. To be effective at your job takes time. So we want people who are going to stay with our company. We're going to invest in them. We're going to train them. We're going to teach them about our company, about what their role is, about our customers, whatever it takes. It takes a long time. So we want people who are going to stay, and we reward people who do stay. I kicked this off very early, and it, we call them perseverance awards. We have them 3, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, and now 35. There are three people in the company who have now been here thirty-five years or more. Fantastic perseverance, and of course they've been successful with the company. They wrote it all the way. So let me tell you a little bit about these rewards. The first award is the three years. It happens to be a watch. I don't happen to I'd be wearing it today, but it's a watch engraved on the back. Your start date. It's a nice watch. It's a Casio. It turns out, it's. Well, Everything we do is sort of special. I, I spent hours choosing the watch, okay? The watch happens to be something called an Echo Drive. I, I don't know why we're talking about it here, yeah, but it's, it, it talks about the level of detail that I'm involved in. Echo Drive watch. It is run by solar power. You don't see it. It looks like a fine watch. But there are solar cells inside the watch, and it's chargeable even by room light. Room light. And once charged, it can stay in the dark, in your drawer for six months and still keep the time, okay? You never have to buy batteries. It's a fantastic watch, okay? Fantastic concept. So it's perseverance. That watch is going to be around as long as you're going to be around. So that's the three-year thing. We give you a nice watch with your, this the date when you began engraved on the back then it accelerates from there. I won't go through every one of them, but I think at five years, it's three extra days vacation and $500 to spend wherever you want. And I'll I'll, I'll go up a little bit more. I think at 15 years, we send you and your spouse, friend, whatever, you and your guest on a trip uh, to anywhere you want in the world to visit the 10 wonders of the world. It's worth about $10,000 and it includes $1,000 of spending money. Just after 10 years, right? Yeah, now, now getting back to the watch, you see, most companies, when you retire, they give you watch. What the heck do you need a watch for when you retire? Right? You don't have to watch the time in it. You don't have to keep track of time when you retire. It's when you're starting you need the friggin' watch. And that's why we give you a watch of three. So getting back to the 10 years, so we have it all planned out. We give you the certificate, and all you have to do is tell my assistant, Linda Carter where you want to go, and everything else is taken care of for you. All the reservations are made, everything's done for you at 10 years. And it goes from there, 15 years, or 20 years. Uh, let's see, 20 years, yes, the 20 years is a party, party like a rock star, with, uh, with as many friends as you can invite, I think it's worth $20,000 at 20 years. And, and here are the rock star places, and the hotels and the ballrooms and everything. Invite as many people as you want to that party. Then at 30 years, we make you a philanthropist. We set up an account at Fidelity Charitable Gift Fund. We fund that account with $25,000. And that account is yours. You can give those monies away. And whichever charities you want, I don't even have to agree with them. I, you know that that, that cost me a little bit of my brain because there are some things I, I prefer you don't donate it to but hey, it's a free world it's your money now $25,000 give it in any amounts to anybody you want so we're making our employees we're giving you the opportunity to be a philanthropist what other companies do that? now recently I'm going to jump forward to 35 years $35,000 to help you do your bucket list whatever you want this is it this is the time you're old enough make that list have fun because otherwise people probably wouldn't do it and that's a requirement that you do it on your bucket list this is not to be to pay down the mortgage it's not for the grandkids uh, education it's for your bucket list and we require that you tell us how you spent the money we want to share in that joy so that's what perseverance means to us we value it and we. Pay You to persevere We reward you to persevere
0: And thanks for that Dr. Bob And if you're listening and you run and own a business Take heart how you treat Your people well what you do With that money and what you do with that time Will determine outcomes perseverance Life lessons from Dr. Bob Here on our American Stories yes. This is Our American Stories, and our next story is about a family-owned business. And by the way, if you know family-owned, multi-generation businesses in your community, send them our way. We love telling stories of family entrepreneurs because, my goodness, what a legacy you can leave for your family if you pass off a family business. Mitch Felderhoff is the co-owner of Munster Milling, a fourth-generation family-owned and operated animal food manufacturer located in Munster, Texas. It's been in operation since 1932 and currently employs 59 people. You might have seen Mitch in the news recently because he decided to eat nothing but the specialized dog food his company makes for 30 straight days. It got our attention. Here's
3: Mitch.
4: My name is Mitch Felderhoff, and I'm one of the fourth generation owners of Munster Milling Company. Uh, I grew up in the business, and... As my parents were getting ready to retire, they had considered uh, selling the business, and my brother and I didn't want to see that happen. So we went to the bank and found a way to come up with the money and, and uh, purchased the, the business from them. They were kind of reluctant to invest, and in, you know, it's a, it's a big investment, and they had put 30, 40 years into the business, and I think they were kind of ready to uh, take a breath and take a break. And uh, you know, we were young, hungry, and and ready to change the world, so we we said, hey, we'll uh, we'll take the gamble and we'll go do it. Uh, we had things that we wanted to do uh, a little bit differently than what had been done in the past, and the uh, easiest way for us to do it was to take control of the business. It was just regular standard kibble for the most part is what we made, and when we purchased it, we, uh, we wanted them to, m- to kind of change the way we did things, and so we incorporated freeze-dried into our product lineup along with the ability to to customize a single bag of food, actually. So now we can add bacon fat or salmon oil to a single bag if we wanted to. You know, our goal was to reduce carbohydrates in pet food and uh, make dog food different than what a lot of people currently are. And so uh, we made the move and put a freeze dryer in about a year ago, which essentially is the ability to make astronaut food for dogs. So we're taking raw food and uh, pulling the moisture out while it's frozen, and uh, essentially leaving just raw organ meat that's shelf-stable. So the way freeze-drying works that's it's different than kibble is you're taking raw frozen meat and you stick it in this giant uh, chamber that looks kind of like a shipping container. It probably weighs about 40,000 pounds and it's stainless steel. And we pull a vacuum on it. So there's no more air in there than there is in outer space. And then we get it down to around 60 degrees. Fahrenheit and we heat the trays up to you know anywhere between 30 and 40 degrees Fahrenheit and when you have that big of a temperature difference in a vacuum it causes a process called sublimation where water goes from the ice form to a vapor form and so it's kind of like watching dry ice sit on the table you know how it just kind of evaporates and you see what looks like cold steam coming out of it that's the process to freeze strike and the benefit to it is you don't have to have a bunch of starches and sugars in there to hold the product together. You know, it's it's still in its quote-unquote frozen state, but all the moisture's been removed. Yeah, you know, kibble you have to heat it up to you know 290 degrees, uh, put a lot of pressure on it, and then dry it in an oven afterwards. And the freeze-dried is such a delicate, gentle process that if you've got a dog that has stomach issues, allergies of any sort, this is almost a foolproof thing that you can feed them. And so the past four years has really been focused on how do we remove carbohydrates and make food less uh, less inflammatory and and still be a, a major employer in in a little town that we grew up in. It's one of those what can we do that Nestle and Mars can't, and they make more kibble than anybody in the world. And uh, dog obesity is at a almost a crisis level. Fifty four percent of dogs are obese, and. Uh, we thought how can we combat that and so um, brother and I were just talking and said you know it's it's hard to make a kibble that's low enough carbohydrates to make a difference and the only way to really kind of push the envelope on it is to start to incorporate uh, more protein and fat via freeze drying so we're using uh, beef chicken fish elk and just started using bison so I came up with the idea a couple of years ago when I walked into a store and I just saw tons and tons of marketing from these other companies and I thought, I can't compete with that. Uh, I, we don't have the, the bankroll to do it and we don't have the ability to write the checks, but what can, what can I do that can help get our company out there and, and help us be noticed and, and kind of get the point across that we care more than them? And just kind of had the idea that, you know what? I'm willing to eat our dog food for 30 days only. I don't think any of these other companies would be, you know. For about two years, I just kicked it around on maybe I should do it, maybe I shouldn't. And then my wife and I were on our 10-year anniversary trip, and you know, you're just you're thinking and and hey, have I have I have I done life the way I wanted to so far? Have I gone all in? Am I giving it everything I have? And I just thought, you know what? I've got this idea of of eating dog food for 30 days that I haven't executed yet. And when I get back, I need to do that. Uh, I I need to take it to the next level. And uh, I told my wife and she just kind of looked at me and laughed and said, you know, of course you are. She was in between. She thought it was great from a uh, uh, what are we willing to do uh, for the business and to to show customers we care. Uh, But it definitely got in the way of meal time because the family eating dinner, and I'm, I'm the biggest one in the family, and so she typically counts on me to eat my share. So there were a lot more leftovers. Uh, the house smelled like cooked dog food for a month, and uh, you know the breath the breath also also had the dog food on it. And then uh, when I got back to the office, my uh, marketing director just said uh, he was kind of he was kind of in the mode of God, please don't do this because uh, if if it goes wrong and you end up in the hospital, then uh, I don't know how we recover from that. And then uh, told my brother, and he he's like, hey, you know, it's probably a good idea, but I'm I'm glad it's not me. So go for it. Day two through four, I was pretty somber and wondering how how am I going to make it another 25 to 28 days, and what the heck did I just sign up for? No seasoning, no sauces, no alcohol, no coffee. It was it was pretty much dog food and water. Four, five, six days in. Uh, everyone was was on board and loving it, and the customers had a great time with it. And it's just been a real fun process. It tastes like you think it would. Um, it it doesn't smell great, and it doesn't taste awesome. Uh, dogs have a little bit different palate than what we do, but uh, you know I'm glad they like it. I have two yellow labs, and one of them is uh, twelve, and the other one's fourteen and a half. Oh, they go nuts over the freeze dried. Uh, so dogs, they're their flavor profile, it comes from fat and protein, not specifically like chicken or beef. They just, they can taste the fat. We've seen a, a huge increase online. I mean, almost triple the uh, visitors to our website uh, this January versus past. Uh, we've had a lot more customers calling that uh, just, hey, they wanted to know more. And then uh, our retailers that have uh, independent brick and mortar locations have said that people have come in talking about it. So we're seeing a positive impact from it. Essentially, we have to be as clean as a, uh, a human-grade facility. And so the investment level that it has, has taken and the commitment it takes is, is much, much higher than what it was years ago. And we're not necessarily charging a lot more for dog food. And so uh, we just have to be leaner and more efficient. And as a smaller manufacturer that's competing against you know some global companies that have – that huge advertising marketing budget, uh, just trying to be creative so that people know who we are is—it's getting harder and harder. We try to to work with uh, independent and uh, family-owned businesses. Uh, that's just where we've spent eighty-seven years, and we we really like that environment and and working with those. And then we. Uh, We also sell online, uh, direct to consumer. We also do a fair amount of private labels, so if somebody wanted their own brand of dog food or treat, we'll make it for them as well. Our website is uh, MunsterMilling.com, and it's Munster spelt like the cheese, and then uh, Milling.com. A lot of dog food that's out there, it's made by candy companies and cereal companies, and it's not their main focus. It's, it's just another way to fill up a truck on the way to the grocery store and try and maximize uh, the value to shareholders. And when we make a food, we make it with a dog in mind, and so much so that uh, we won't feed your dog something that we haven't eaten ourselves.
0: And you've been listening to Mitch Felderhoff, and he's the co-owner of Munster Milling, a fourth-generation family-owned and operated animal food manufacturer. Located in Munster, Texas, and my goodness, he lost 30 pounds, by the way, going on that little trial, and uh, learned a lot, and my goodness, sold a lot of dog food along the way. I love that he said, young, hungry, and ready to change the world. That's how he described himself at that age. And how did he want to change the world? He wanted to change his world by keeping a family business in a small town and employing 59 people. And that, folks, that's changing the world. Mitch Felderhoff's story here on Our American Stories. If you have a small family business like this, multi-generation, share the story with us. My favorite is the Steinway family story. What a remarkable story. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to it. The Germans back in the day had guilds, and they didn't think they needed another piano maker. So Germany said, get out of Dodge. America's gain was Germany's loss as the great piano manufacturer stays in the family from multi-generations. Munster Milling, Mitch Felderhoff's story here on Our American Story. we continue here with our American stories and with a story from one of our regular contributors and Texan, Tim Dunn. Tim's brought us some incredible stories from the Bible, Job, Daniel, and Abraham. But today he brings us his own story and the story of an industry that employs over 6.7 million Americans. Here's Tim.
3: I remember the first time it dawned on me I might get drafted and sent to Vietnam when I was about 15. I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to be leaving home here before too long. Somewhere in there, I told my dad, you know, I might just stick around the house for a while and uh, kick back and kind of take it easy after I get out of high school. And my dad was a really, really easygoing guy. He was a real affable, gregarious guy, great salesman. Always kind of a happy life of the party sort of a guy. Never talked to me sternly. But in this particular instance, he looked over at me and he said, listen, don't get that idea. When you turn 18, you, you're you out of here. You go get a job and you go get your own living. And if you go to college, if you decide to go to college, you can come back some. But that's it. You're out of here. And my, my life changed that day. I sort of changed my orientation. My, oh, okay, I got to get a job. By the way, many years later, that thought came back to me, and I realized, God, that's the right way to do it with kids. And I did the same thing with my boys. Listen, that's a fantastic thing to do for your sons. Boys don't become men until the safety nets pulled out. But he was—he had my best interest at heart. That's why he said that. He knew it was good for me. But anyway, I, I didn't know what to do. And I was pretty good at chemistry. So I was talking about becoming an engineer. So a girl at, at our high school that I knew, her dad was the president of the local oil refinery. Now, in Big Spring, I think there was only one office building that had an elevator. And that was the Cosden building, the oil refinery building. So she got an appointment for me and a friend of mine that was also interested in being an engineer. And we went into his office and he interviewed us. And I remember going into that office. It seemed gigantic. This this thing seemed so huge and so posh in my memory. I'd love to go back and see what it really looked like. But he was talking on a speakerphone, which was like sci-fi kind of stuff back in those days. You know, I, I had a black rotary dial phone at home and he had a speakerphone where you could actually talk without your hands. And we walked into his office. And he was saying something like, well, yeah, we got millions of barrels of oil out here. And I thought, he's playing Monopoly for a living. Now, my favorite thing to do growing up was to play Monopoly, because I loved the idea of buying and selling and winning, you know, making deals. The, when, when it came time to trade the property, that was my favorite part. But he's playing Monopoly. And so he talked to us, and he was a chemical engineer. And he had worked his way up through Cosden Oil and refining and become the president of Cosden. And I thought to myself, that's what I want to do. So I had one data point. And when you have just one data point to extrapolate from, it's easy to make a projection, right? <laughs> so I, it was my first and only taste. And I, had, I just didn't know better. I started my own business back in 1996 and basically been... Doing this for 22 years now as a Midland oil and gas producer. Along the way, I learned to love the oil business. The oil and gas business is such an enormous, incredible contributor to humanity. And it's basically lifted the entire world out of subsistence level poverty into an industrial prosperity. You know, the oil business in the ancient days was the olive business. You would uh, raise olives, crush the olives, get the oil, and then you would use the very best oil perhaps for cosmetics and for the virgin oil, for cosmetics and for maybe religious purposes. The next oil perhaps you use for food and cooking and things like that, and then the worst oil maybe you put in your lamps and you burn that in. And that's the oil business. And, and then, you know, many years later, kind of people figured out how to do whaling. You know, these, these whaling ventures would go out and they, they financed the whaling ventures much like we finance an oil and gas venture. The guys would sign on board and they'd get a fraction of the takings that they're gonna get and they'd go out and whale and they'd get a whale and they'd cook the blubber on board and they'd put it in barrels and store it and then they'd come back to port, and sell the whale oil. And they used that for lamps and then, of course, The whale population started to decline, and these ships had to go further and further, and it started getting harder. And along comes petroleum, and petroleum is much less expensive than whaling. So the petroleum business really saved the whales. And then there was this period where the oil for the lamps became very erratic, like sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad, sometimes it would be real sooty, sometimes it wouldn't be sooty. And this fellow named Rockefeller came along and said, we need, we need a standard for the business, a standard where the oil's always clean and it burns purely. So he started the Standard Oil Company, which we now know today as Exxon. And all through this era, you know, the uses of oil are being developed. And, of course, the original cars were powered by steam. And in order to create steam, you have to, you have to create heat. You have to heat water. The water creates steam and the steam drives the engine. But the problem is usually the fuel, like coal for example, is really heavy. And so if you have to carry a real heavy thing to create the power, then you use up a ton of your power to propel the fuel. Well along comes petroleum. Petroleum is a miracle fuel because it has such incredibly high energy density. Like, you, you can put in a gas tank, which is not very big part of the car and doesn't weigh very much, enough energy to drive for four or 500 miles. And that's unbelievable. You can't do that with coal. The coal trains had these giant cars full of coal because a big part of the weight that they had to carry was the coal. The reason why you can't drive around with a car that runs directly off the sun is because in order to have a solar panel big enough to convert enough sunlight to energy to run the car, the panel would be so huge that it would crush the car. And the same is true with wind. You, you it's, it's too dispersed, it's not concentrated. And so when you have wind and solar, you have to take that power and you have to concentrate it and put it in a battery. And batteries technology now has come a long, long way. And they're getting to the point where like you can store energy in a battery, like for your cell phone or for some electrical vehicles, but still a struggle to do it nearly as economically as you can do it with petroleum. Now that technology is developing, but it has quite a ways to go before you can do what you can do with petroleum. So what happens then, now you have this internal combustion engine and it's portable. So now you can move things around. Well, that means that you can, instead of having a horse connected to a plow, you can have a machine connected to the plow. Instead of being able to plow 40 acres in a day, you can plow several hundred acres in a day. And the machines keep getting more sophisticated. Now you get to the point where instead of whatever it was, 80, 90%, let's say, of the economy being agriculture, where we're trying to feed ourselves, uh, now it's just a few percent. A few percent of the population can feed all the rest of us because we have machines. It's like having 100 servants for every person
0: in America. And you've been listening to Tim Dunn, and what a storyteller he is. And favorite part of doing this show is that we've just come across people from all walks of life who are subject matter experts, and we just give them the microphone. They're not famous. They don't storytell for a living. They've got life. And so often, they're the ones with the most interesting stories to tell. And my goodness, that he was playing Monopoly, and in the end, well, that's much of what he still does today. And then he had one reference point. By the way, I've always called this the choice paradox. If you have too many choices, you can sometimes have none. And sometimes it's just a gift to have that one reference point and then go ahead and live your life. And my goodness, he's proud of what he does in this business called the energy business, and he should be. And more of this remarkable story, not only of American energy, but of so many people who fuel the fuel business, the human beings that propel it. His story, all of their stories continue here on Our American Story. we continue here with our American stories and with energy entrepreneur Tim Dunn on the story of energy. And by the way, that story about what happened in the whaling business, we also know what could have happened to our nation's forests, but for the advent of oil and now natural gas. Now let's continue with Tim Dunn and his story.
3: The Biltmore is a house in the Asheville, North Carolina area. It's quite spectacular. You can pay whatever it is, 50 bucks or something and go see it. It's a an attraction now. But when it was built, it was built by one of the Vanderbilts who was heir to a railroad fortune. And he built this house to receive guests. So it was a huge hospitality place. It's a 180,000 square foot house, if I remember correctly. 180,000 square feet. I mean, the average house is what? Depending on where you live, somewhere between 1,500 square feet and 4,000 square feet. This 180,000 square feet. Do you know offhand what the White House square footage is? 55,000. So the White House is 55,000 square feet. I mean, this is 180,000 square feet. It's gigantic. Built right around the 1900s, before oil and gas really kicked in. And I was walking around this house, and I thought, wow, these guys had refrigeration, which was something brand new. And this refrigerator took up a whole room. I don't remember what it was powered by, probably coal and steam, but, you know, this giant room. And I thought, gosh, we now have many refrigerators and dorms and colleges. You know, you can. there's refrigerators everywhere. Everybody has a refrigerator now. This isn't just for rich people anymore. And then we went up and looked at the rooms, and the rooms had buttons you could push and call the waiter. Wow, that was amazing back then. Well, you know, just about everybody has that opportunity now. In fact, in my town, which is not that large of a city, there's all-night drugstores. There's all-night restaurants. All I have to do is go get in my car and drive a few minutes. And there's people waiting there to feed me any time of the day, 24 hours a day. I can go get prescription 24 hours a day if I have something wrong just like this mega mega rich guy had and i just kind of went through systematically looking at all his amazing benefits and even access to this property if you want to get married at the biltmore today you can rent it and i just realized that he wasn't the upper one percent he was the upper one you know the richest guy in america or one of the handful of richest guys in america most of the people I know today have a better life than he did. And if they want access to all this stuff, they don't have to pay all the immense freight that it takes to have it sitting there for them all the time. It's waiting there in the marketplace for them to use any they need it. Then they can stop paying for it and somebody else can pay for it. It's unbelievable what has happened and why. How has that happened? When Vanderbilt built this house, he kind of built it in the middle of nowhere. He had to build a railroad spur so people could get to it. Well, we don't have to do that today. We've got this amazing road system, all paved with petroleum, uh, asphalt. We've got this amazing transportation system powered by petroleum. We've got all these incredible materials that we can go and purchase, the vast majority of which is petroleum-based we've got all this unbelievable medical technology a vast proportion of which is either made from or powered by petroleum and and so that we have this petroleum based lifestyle where average people we have the ability to live like better than a king could and that's really fueled by technology of petroleum now there's another, of course, development that has made an enormous impact as well, and that is the trained electron, which is electricity. So between petroleum, the internal combustion engine that burns petroleum, and the advances in electricity and the invention of the computer, you take those things combined, and the average person today has what it would have taken perhaps 100 servants to be able to provide to you the to try to provide and still wouldn't have been able to. And we get it for, you know, pennies on the dollar. And that's all been, that's all been made possible by these immense advances in petroleum and, and these other technologies. So today, if you look at the world economy, the average wage, the average wage, the median wage is what? What would you say? What would you guess? It's $1,500 a year, $1,500, okay? If you want to be in the upper 1% of earners in the world, upper 1%, how much money do you think you have to make? It's a little over $30,000 a year to be in the upper 1%, okay? And if you look at kind of the, what we call our poverty level in the United States, I, I I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I think that's at about the 85th percentile in the world. So if you are at the American poverty level, you have a higher income than 85% of the people in the world. And that 1500 is considerably higher than it, than it was. I mean, you have now, I think it's something on the order of like half the world now is not in subsistence farming up from like was subsistence farming just a few decades ago. So the world is industrializing at an immensely rapid pace, which is why it's been able to hold 8 billion people. So if you go back and look in literature, there's been predictions of massive famine and overwhelming death and all these predictions that the world had too many people and it was going to destroy humanity because there's too many people. Well, that was based on a world where you don't have petroleum, and you don't have internal combustion engines, and you don't have computers, and you don't have an electrification of the world. Because the productivity of humanity explodes when you have machines working for you. And so you have now 8 billion people that have the working power of 800 billion people. It's an, it's an immense multiplier if everyone had the capabilities that we have in America. So this abundance of energy, it is, it is a way to bring immense material prosperity to people. I'm a fan of uh, Fogel's works, and he wrote a book called The Fourth Great Awakening. He chronicles the impact that spiritual awakenings have had on America. And in each case, each awakening where, where people get the idea—and these have been Christian movements so people get the idea that wow my life is defined by serving others so how do we reach out and help as someone who's disadvantaged and these these movements have turned into a hospital movement which started off as charities that the healthcare system is today mostly influenced by government but it was really started out of philanthropy and charity and out of the churches the temperance movement of course was a big movement to try to get fathers back in the house and out of the saloons. There were all kinds of movements and that's why the full title of the book is The Fourth Great Awakening and the Rise of Egalitarianism in America. And and by egalitarianism he means the vast spreading of wealth and prosperity. And he ends the book with a prediction that in this Fourth Great Awakening the material prosperity of Americans has grown to the point where as as we just talked about, the poor people are in the upper 15% and the average wage is above the top 1% in the world. So what is poverty now? And he predicts that the main poverty we have today is spiritual poverty, uh, meaning and purpose. You know, when you're really busy just trying to stay alive and getting out there and farming and hoping it rains, you know, pleading for the crop to come in, you don't have a lot of time to get depressed, but when you have a hundred people working for you in the form of machines and you have a lot of time on your hands, it causes you to sit back and reflect, why am I here? What am I doing? What's my purpose in life? Why do I matter? Does anybody accept me? What do I have to do to be accepted? What do I have to do to be approved? And if you don't have answers, if you don't have good answers to those questions, now that's where poverty comes from. And unfortunately in America, our suicide rates on the rise, even in the midst of this vast material prosperity. So material prosperity doesn't bring you happiness, but what it does bring you is the time to make choices to either make a great positive impact or to be self-destructive. And so we, we have this other challenge in the West and in America in particular that we have to address, which is why I think our American stories is so important because people need to be inspired that there is a way forward for them where they can make choices to matter.
0: And that's what we try and do each and every day here, tell stories. And in the end, let people step into those stories with their own life. Because life does matter, and we are spiritual beings. And in the end, we got to address those deep spiritual questions. Who are we? What's our purpose? And we try to do that all the time here on this show. Tim Dunn's voice is just a beautiful one. And by the way, to enjoy more of his work, go to yellowballoons.net. You'll see and hear Tim's book. And it's all about how he grieved after his two-year-old granddaughter's death. And also his terrific daily devotional, that's yellowballoons.net, yellowballoons.net. Tim Dunn's story and so many stories like his in the energy business. And my goodness, this isn't the voice you'd expect to hear from an energy executive, is it? And that's what we like to do to surprise you and go against the grain and stereotype and caricature. Tim Dunn's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And we love to hear from authors on this show. And today we have author Kimberly Ray Miller talking about the memoir she wrote a few years back. Faith brings us the story.
5: I just always knew that we lived in a dirty house and other people lived in a clean house and that just seemed like the way things were. I I realized it was something different and wrong when I was in kindergarten and um, CPS was called to my home and I remember my parents frantically trying to clean the house before um, the social workers visit um, so that they wouldn't lose custody of me. And that's when I realized that living in a dirty home was a bad thing that it it was something that could destroy my life Um, and of course you know i grew up just always making excuses why why people couldn't come to my house Um, from that point on i knew it was a secret and you know in high school i would just sort of always tell people well my house is being renovated or Um, My parents aren't home, they don't like people over when when they're not home. I would always make some sort of excuse so people wouldn't come over. And when people were to to drop me off at home, I actually had what I called my decoy house, which was a house around the corner from my actual house, Um, that was just this sort of unimpressive home that was neither fancy nor dilapidated, it was just very plain. And. I would just have people drop me off in front of that, and I would like walk up the sidewalk and wave at my friends and wait until they left, and then I would walk to my house from there.
6: Kimberly Ray Miller is a writer
5: and a mother of two small children. The life she has now is completely different than the home she grew up in. In her career, she decided to write a book about this upbringing called Coming Clean, a memoir. I started writing Coming Clean um, when I was 28 years old. And up until that point, I had been a writer. I mostly wrote gossip and health and fitness jargon, and um, that was sort of my niche. And I took a book writing class with an agent who had told me that you had to tell the story only you could tell. And I thought, wow, there's really nothing interesting about me. I am this middle-class girl from the suburbs of Long Island, and I'm trying to make it as an actress, and I work a day job and host a web show, but there's really nothing really that interesting about me. And then my mom got sick, and she ended up going in to have her gallbladder removed, and they ended up severing the vein going to her liver. And she almost completely bled out. She was in the hospital for months. And while she was there, I was faced with the reality that there was something very unique about me and unique about my family, which was that I grew up in a hoarding home. Uh, my father is a hoarder, and the way that I grew up was unique. What I was faced with when my mom was in the hospital was that I needed to make sure that the home that she went home to was clean enough for her to heal, to be safe, and to walk around the walker. the Um, And so I remember being in the hospital, walking into one of those rooms. She was on a cancer ward because that was just the the only place they had room for her. And walking into one of those private family rooms where you sort of go to get bad news. And calling a friend of mine whose mother owned a cleaning service. And for the first time in my life, confessing that my family wasn't like other families, that I was a hoarder. Well, I wasn't a hoarder. My dad was a hoarder. And I came from a hoarding home, and then I needed help because my mom was being released from the hospital in 72 hours. And I basically said, I will give you every sin that I have if you can help me find people who will clean my parents' house. And up until then, I would go home every few months, clean my parents' house out. And then it would get full again and I would go back and clean it out and um, that was sort of the cycle that we lived in, but it was also something that seemed very normal to me. It was something that I didn't give much thought to. Um, so after I sort of came out as somebody who had a very close relationship with hoarding disorder, I started remembering a lot of things that I sort of put away in the back of my mind. I had you know I started remembering a lot of things about my childhood, about the houses that we lived in and uh, I realized that I did have a story to tell and it may not be the story of every hoarding family but it was a story of mine and I have a very close relationship with my parents I'm, I'm very close to my family. I don't blame them for the way that I grew up and I felt like if anyone was going to tell this story I wanted it to be me because I wanted the way that people saw hoarding to be human, um, to put a human face on on this disorder. Um, So I started writing down all of these memories that I was having and I remember calling the teacher from my writing class years earlier who had told me that I had to tell the story only I could tell and saying, I think I have a story. And I went into her office and she happened to be an agent. I told her my story and she's like, yes, this is a book. Um, And so I started writing Coming Clean and Coming Clean came out in 2013, um, and it changed my life. Um, I, the, the months between when, it came, when I finished it and when it came out were the scariest of my life because I really believed that once people knew, once people knew that I grew up in garbage, that I didn't have heat or hot water, or, or that there were rats in my home, at one point there was a homeless person living in our attic. Um, that we just didn't know about um, because there was just so much stuff. I felt once people knew these things about me that they wouldn't want anything to do with me.
0: And you're listening to author Kimberly Ray Miller, and her book is Coming Clean. And it's her story about growing up with hoarding parents and the shame she felt. I mean, that story about having a decoy house and having people drop her off in front of that decoy house and wave goodbye that she could avoid and avert the embarrassment of such a thing as her own home and also the shame and the guilt of growing up in that home. When we continue more of Kimberly Ray Miller's story, Coming Clean, here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories. We've been listening to Kimberly Ray Miller share her story from her book Coming Clean. It's a memoir about her life growing up in a hoarding home. We return to Kimberly talking about what it was like to write such a personal story.
5: I've I've never been more emotional publicly. I I lived in Brooklyn while I was writing Coming Clean and I remember I would sit down at home to write and nothing would come. And then I would get on the F train to go back and forth to work or to see my boyfriend who is now my husband, I would just break down. I used to carry a laptop in my 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 purse so that I could write because I knew that whenever I was around people, whenever I felt that energy of, of other people, that's when I I started to remember everything and I started to feel things very deeply and then I would just start writing. So wherever I was, I wrote half of that book on my phone What's funny is that I actually met my, the man who's now my husband, while I was starting to write the book. And I sort of credit writing Coming Clean with the success of our relationship, because up until then, my whole life had been about keeping this secret about myself. Because of that, I sort of always internalized that who I was at home was a private thing. and. So I, I have to say that I didn't always get very close to people in relationships, and I met my hu- husband at the beginning of this process, and I was such an open wound, basically. I was just so open about everything, about who I was, about the trauma that I had experienced, and, and he stuck around. <laughs> but I mean, I, I was actually ready to just be myself at that point because I'd finally opened up um, and allowed myself to be who I was publicly. I was always an overachiever, right? So my whole life was about escaping where I came from. I, you know, I always when I talk to educators, I always say, you know, yes, you want to look for the kids who are you know, showing obvious signs that they they that they need help, but you also want to look at the kids who are who are doing their damnedest to fly under the radar. So I, you know, for me everything was about being as perfect as possible so that nobody noticed me. You know, I I really used my background as the catalyst to achieve and to get out and to get away from home. Um, And actually, you know, a big turning point for my family happened when I, the the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I had received financial aid to go to college. I went to a very expensive school, you know, this is why 17-year-olds should not make major life and financial decisions. So my financial aid was withdrawn and I was faced with moving back home and going to a local school until I could afford to go back to college and I had finally escaped. I had gotten away, I had moved and I was out on my own and I was sort of living my dream and everything I had always worked for Um, and then I was faced with moving back home and my parents' home was sort of as bad as it had ever been. Um, it, you know, there was there were rats, there were, you know, bugs, there were fleas. It was it we had no utilities anymore. We were all just sort of like living on our mattresses because the house was so full. And I tried to kill myself because I I couldn't go backward. So I overdosed and um that was sort of this turning point for my family because my parents had sort of bought into this idea that I was totally okay because I had made it such a staple of who I was that I was fine, that everything was perfect, that I was totally okay and I just couldn't handle this idea of moving back. At the hospital, I wouldn't speak to my parents and my mom came in and she said, I just want you to know you never have to go back there. We rented an apartment. So they, they abandoned their home um, and got out and I always say that that was like the best, stupidest mistake I ever made. You know, I, I don't condone ever trying to kill yourself, ever, but it was the catalyst my family needed to get out of a situation that was killing us. It was really killing us. And while they've always dealt with hoarding disorders since then, it's never gotten as bad. Um, so that was the moment my parents needed to, to get them unstuck and my mom ended up cashing out some of her annuities so that I could get, go back to school in the fall until we were able to, to figure out the rest of my finances. So it shaped me. I, my whole life was about proving that I was okay and that I was fine and, the, and, and, you know, don't look behind the curtain. A lot of that has changed since I wrote the book because now everything is about what's behind the curtain. So it's 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 almost the complete opposite my life since um but my formative years were all about, you know, putting on a show. How did her parents feel when she decided to write this book? When I decided to write Coming Clean and I I remember leaving my agent's office and then having like a total nervous breakdown in the middle of the street when I realized the severity of what I had just done and calling my parents. And my parents were amazing. They said, you know, when, when you were young, we didn't believe anybody in the world lived like us. So if this story can help other people get help when they need it, then you should do it. And I kept them in, in the loop of what, what I was writing the entire time. I always gave them the option for me to pull the plug if they ever got too uncomfortable. Now, this isn't the way that most memoirists work, you know, I mean, I, I'm part of a bunch of memoirist groups where people sort of, you know, under the the general belief that if people wanted you to write nice things about them, they should have been nicer, but I, I think my parents existed in a state of mental illness, and, and they really couldn't help a lot of what they did, and so I know that my parents did the best that they could, and I always wanted to give them the respect of not having their life turned upside down and made public if they were uncomfortable with it. And so um, they were always a part of the process. I ran everything I wrote by them. They never asked me to change anything, but I never wanted anything to be a surprise. And I think one of the things that I learned through the writing process was that you can be angry angry with people and still love them completely. And I think that was one of the things that I had a hard time with growing up was, acknowledging the fact that I was angry about a lot of the things that I had to do as a kid to keep this secret, um, and the secret and the way that we lived, um, but that doesn't mean that I love my parents any less, and I would say that I am not bitter. Bitterness isn't something that I prescribe to generally, but I do have some anger, and I think that anger can be a healthy emotion, and it's okay to have anger, and that's been my biggest learning curve in, in all of this is that to sort of accept that anger is an okay thing and to have it and to have it not impact my relationship with my parents. Writing the book actually helped her relationship with her parents. We can finally talk about it you know we never talked about it before we just never it was just sort of this big elephant in the room our entire lives revolved around hoarding and we never talked about it and at least now we can talk about it and You know, we can call a spade a spade. And in many senses that makes things a little bit more manageable for us. It's also easy to see like where my issues come from too, you know, (laughs) so if my house, I mean, I have two small children, so my house is pretty regularly a mess, but you know, I get to a point where I can't handle it emotionally. And you know, it's much easier for me to say like, okay, I know where this is coming from than to take it out on my kids or my husband. And to just say, like, listen, guys, like, this is my tipping point. You know, we need to clean things up before I lose it. Kimberly has been through a lot. She was afraid when she wrote her book, Coming Clean, that people would judge her. But quite the opposite happened. People opened up about their deepest, darkest secrets to me. Um, I can't tell you how many people I knew shared that they'd either grown up that way or they had close family members who had also... Um, suffered from hoarding disorder and they they totally understood where I was coming from Uh, people opened up about all sorts of other traumas and what I realized in writing it was that you know we all carry the baggage of our secrets and it's actually what makes us human it's what makes us empathetic and and if we could just share that with people we'd all feel so much lighter and so much more connected to one another I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job on that piece, Faith. And what a piece of work by Kimberly Ray Miller. What a voice and what sensitivity that she brought this to her parents. And what remarkable parents for saying, look, if this can help anybody else write it. And it deepened their relationship. And look, if you've ever had a secret and kept it for too long, you know the cost and the price of that secret. It'll just... It'll just take you down. My whole life was about escaping where they came from. I flew under the radar. Be perfect, and no one will notice me. And she's right. So many kids in our schools, so many people around us, they're coming apart. They're just not showing it. And then that suicide attempt, my goodness, that rocked the family. And actually, it changed things. And again, it was not a recommended technique. Kimberly Ray Miller suggested others pursue to help a family Rectify some real problems. Kimberly Ray Miller's story coming clean, her family's story, her family's secret unveiled. Here on our American stories. This is Our American Stories. And our next story is about the most unlikely band to become, statistically speaking at least, the greatest rap group in American
6: history. In 1987, three white Jewish boys from New York City were the most fascinating phenomenon in the burgeoning rap music scene. No, really, the Beastie Boys... Barely Out of Their Teens had just released License to Ill, which quickly reached number one on the charts, the first hip-hop album to achieve that exalted status. And true, it was the fastest-selling debut album in the history of Columbia Records under the Def Jam label. But everybody knew that these three knuckleheads, who were clever enough to come up with the shtick that clicked with MTV-loving suburbia, were just a novelty act.
5: Bad brothers you know so well it started way back in history with Sia, and me
6: the cartoonish trio consisted of Adam MCA Yauk, Adam Adrock Horowitz, son of prominent playwright Israel Horowitz, and Michael Mike D. Diamond 3 MCs from NYC started out as a hardcore punk band opening for legendary punk groups like the misfits and the Dead Kennedys in some of the most legendary clubs in the world, such as CBGB's. In 1983, they released a track that was basically a crank call set to a hip-hop beat. It became an underground favorite, but in order to play the song during their live sets, they brought in a DJ known as DJ Double R. Rick Rubin was a long-haired NYU student who would temporarily become the fourth white Jew of the Beastie Boys. But Rubin's DJ stint would be short-lived, and he left the group in order to focus on his small indie rap label called Def Jam Records, which he started and was run out of his dorm room with his friend Russell Simmons. Here's Rick Rubin.
7: The very baby stages of hip-hop was just starting. Completely underground movement. I don't think many people knew about it outside of Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, or Harlem. I would see these groups live, and there was an energy in the room that was uh, a very specific feeling. And then the records that would come out didn't have that feeling. The 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 records that were made early in the years of hip-hop, they were essentially R&B records with a band playing an R&B club track, and then a guy would rap on it. But if you went to a club and saw an MC, it wasn't that, it was a DJ scratching and it was beats. Anyone
8: who can make a cripple man dance by using his mouth, if he give me a chance.
7: I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't really know what a producer did. I just felt like it was possible to make a record that felt more like what the club felt like. Nine Nine Records was a record story I hung out in, and they put out their own records. Through them, I learned the process of making our own records, where to have the sleeves made, where to have the labels made, and started putting out records. The logo was a big D and a big J, and it really was about the DJ's place in hip-hop being, in a way, equal to that of the MC.
6: Just as the Beasties were beginning to bubble on the punk scene, they transitioned to rap, a significantly less popular form of music at the time. So insignificant, You could count on one hand the number of known rap groups at the time. And on that one hand, none of them were white. Major labels were not looking for rappers, and definitely not white ones. That is, until Rick Rubin offered the Beasties a deal in 1984 on his dorm room-operated label. Rubin took his metalhead music background and his passion for rap music and infused it into these three teenaged boys. Here's Beastie Boy, Mike D.
8: Rick definitely came from, like, a whole ACDC,
5: like, Led Zeppelin, Long Island, like, rock background that, that wasn't, that he pretty much, I guess, in that sense kind of introduced us because we kind of came from, like, punk rock, like, all right, forget about that. We just wanted to, you know, do hip-hop. And He kind of definitely brought that, that kind of in in a, in a big way. I mean, definitely we got real into it and got into the idea of, like, Led Zeppelin having beats or, you know, ACDC having grooves or beats, whatever.
6: Here's Ruben.
7: I grew up on Long Island and kind of liked a lot of more heavy metal and rock and roll, so I kind of tried to incorporate things like Led Zeppelin and and ACDC and more rock aspects into the hip-hop. It was just an interesting cross pollinization of cultures, taking all the stuff that we grew up with and figuring out how to mix it all together and use elements from all different places.
6: After releasing some buzzworthy singles, the group went on to open for pop legend Madonna on her Virgin Tour. Their popularity grew. Here's MTV in 1985 asking the 22-year-old Rick Rubin where the Beastie Boys' video is at. The only reason that we haven't
7: done a video yet is because as soon as we do, they're going to have to change it from MTV to Beastie TV because that's all they're going to show all day long, all night long.
6: The Beastie survived the Madonna tour with their love us or hate us attitude and then joined the rap legends Run DMC on their groundbreaking Raising Hell tour where acceptance was much more coveted. But going on tour with Run DMC didn't guarantee success with their almost all-black audience. Here's friends of Ruben and the Beasties, Rick Minello and Adam Dubin, and former host of Yo! MTV Raps, Dr. Dre.
8: So when they first walked on the stage, it was like, whoa, we white guys trying to rap.
4: On stage, a white guy had to earn his stripes and no one had done that yet. It's like if you went to the Apollo and you were a comedian. The audience in the rap in rap at that time was just like the audience, the black audience at the Apollo. Which a white audience sits there and goes, "Okay, entertain me." A black audience goes, "What you got? What you got, sucker?" Basically, because they they want to be entertained. And when the Beasties first came on, they were not greeted with with widespread approval, but usually by the end of their set they would have won the audience over. And they did that pretty quickly.
8: We did a show in Virginia, and you had 5,000 little black girls screaming and hollering, trying to get to them. wanting to have a good time, and, and loving the guys, just generally because of they were real with what they were trying to say. They weren't trying to be black. They were trying to be the Beastie Boys. And it worked, and it translated. The music translated, not the color. Uh, the beats were very aggressive. So in hip-hop, we always loved aggressive beats as far as stuff like from Aerosmith, stuff like from Queen, ACDC, so those kind of beats were kind of similar to what they were doing with the alternative beats with the big drums and the big ba-ba-boom boom, ba, and all that craziness. Uh, all we did is just scratch it, so you heard the so we always used the same kind of, like similar beats. so it was kind of like right there on the same thing, but uh it was the commentary and the delivery that was a little different.
6: Here's hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy and Daryl McDaniel from Run DMC.
8: And I remember these guys coming out and doing hold it, not hit it, and the crowd went crazy. I was backstage at the time, and I remember Run came back and said, yo, the BC's about to come on. And everybody rushed to the side of the stage to watch them. And that's Rakim, LL, Cool J, Mo D, Houdini. Everybody on the tour came to the side of the stage, because everybody felt like they were their little brothers. Like. They were open up for us. It was like the black audience. And we could be like down in the south, down in Texas, or down in South Carolina in some really southern black Negro town. And when the Beasties came out and um, Dr. Dre was scratching and they came out jumping around, screaming, rhyming, it wasn't like people could say, all right, let me go get a prank. But people stood and was like, yo, these white boys are ill. These white boys are dope. These white boys are good. Say ho, ho.
6: Here's Public Enemies. Chuck D.
1: They was almost like the flip side, like Jackie Robinson was to baseball, the Beastie Boys were
6: to rap music. Here's Beastie Boys, MCA, and Mike D.
8: When we first came out making hip hop, people were just like mainly surprised because no white kids were really up on hip hop or doing it too much. so. Like, I guess a lot of kids would just check it out and just be surprised to even hear that we were making that kind of music and just be like, what? You guys are white? Like, they would think we were Puerto Rican or something or just not figure that we were white. People were really freaked out that all of a sudden, number one, we were having concerts where there were black groups and white groups performing on stage. You had black kids and white kids coming together in a way that they probably never would have for any other group at the time.
0: And when we come back, more on the life and the work Of the BC boys. And we love music here. Every kind. From Miles Davis to Merle Haggard. We do everything here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of the Beastie Boys, and let's bring it back to Greg Hengler.
6: From the beginning, the Beastie Boys kept a foot in both worlds, one in the hip-hop world and the other in the pop-rock world. But keep in mind that the boys achieved all the success before they even put out a full-length album. The band was perfectly positioned, right on the edge between clever and stupid. And all this momentum culminated into the headline from the Village Voice. Three jerks make a masterpiece. The Beastie Boys released their Rap Metal Fuse debut LP that's sampled from the likes of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Clash, ACDC, and CCR, to name just a few. We all know the name of the album, but nobody says it better than the legendary talk show host and comedian Joan Rivers.
5: Their newest album is called License to Kill, and it went platinum after only eight weeks. License to Kill, right?
6: That's ill, Joe.
5: <laughs> like, well, I'm telling you, I got my stupid contacts in. Hold on. <laughs> okay, sorry about this. Their album is called License to Ill. That's a stupid name for an album. <laughs>
4: Take the note of jealousy in your
5: voice. kid, you' gone platinum in four weeks. Anyhow
6: It didn't go platinum in four weeks, but it did become the first rap record to hit number one on the Billboard charts. It also hit number two on the r and b charts. Rap charts had yet to exist. Once again, a foot in both worlds. Here's hip-hop pioneer. Adams. I
8: remember Adam and I were walking down the street before the record came out and he says to me, he goes, this is going to be so great, we're going to be, you know, on American Bandstand and we're going to do Soul Train and we're going to be hanging out with Don Cornelius. And I looked over to him and I was like, you know, you're crazy, nobody's going <laughs> to do that. And the record came out and it exploded and literally in two months we were in L.A. on Soul Train for Don Cornelius and I, I just couldn't believe that America just embraced them in the way that they did
6: Licensed to Ill went triple platinum and became the biggest selling rap record of the 80s and was certified Diamond in 2015 for shipping over 10 million copies in the United States to this day the album still sells over 10,000 copies a week a true rarity in the ever-changing world of hip-hop Def Jam, under the direction of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, tried to take the success of the Beastie Boys to the big screen, a tactic used with both Run-DMC and the Fat Boys. But the Beasties rejected the offer and left Def Jam in New York for Capitol Records in L.A. to work with the Dynamo production team of the Dust Brothers and Matt Dyke on their sophomore album. Fans expected License to Ill Part Two. But instead of rehashing their biggest hit, the band returned in 1989 with the album Paul's Boutique, the most sample-laden LP in the history of hip hop. Using around 300 samples from funk, soul, rock, rap, jazz, and everything in between, from the Beatles to Johnny Cash to the Eagles, the head-spinning epic was one of the most counterintuitive albums ever made. Rather than give the fans more of the same, the Beasties gave them more Cowbell. With their Commodore's powered single, Hey Ladies, which was sampled from Jeanette Lady Day's Come Let Me Love You. Here's rock critics Alan Light and Joe Levy.
4: Paul really just didn't sound like anything that anybody had ever done before. Where the Dust Brothers were in terms of sampling technology on that record, nobody had heard that before. People didn't could make a record sound like that.
7: It's just this beautifully layered record, very deep in its musical texture, very deep in its lyrical texture, as funny as can be. They, they sampled Cheap Trick, they sampled David Bromberg. They, they had these wide ears, they were open to everything.
4: And you could never make that record today it'd be way too expensive you could still use recognizable samples in 1989 and not have to pay millions and millions of dollars for them so it hit a lucky time where they there was this new technology that they could really exploit and really play around with
6: with the release of paul's boutique the beastie boys had reinvented their sound it was another masterpiece but it was also a commercial disaster and cost some Capitol Records employees their jobs. It barely earned gold status. Here's music critic Nelson George.
8: Paul's Boutique cleared away all the pop people and left them with their real core fans. And those are the people who were going to grow with them. And what happened is the people who they got with Paul's Boutique then became their new audience. So it's a, they really made a transition in who bought their records and who were their fans.
6: Ten years after the release of Paul's Boutique, it went double platinum and was recognized worldwide as a landmark achievement and one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Rolling Stone would describe the album as the pet sounds and dark side of the moon of hip-hop. Fast forwarding to 1992, their next album was ready. But with the emergence of grunge rock and the dominance of gangster rap, Nobody knew how the public would respond to their third album, Check Your Head. It was the first record released under the band's own label, Grand Royale, and the first album featuring instrumentation from the band, a move that brought them back to their punk rock roots.
8: They really found a way to blend a hip-hop core with other kinds of music. And so you do not end up with the stereotypes or the cliches of hip-hop, but with some of the best flavor ever.
6: Check Your Head was different from Paul's Boutique, as that album was, from License to Ill, and as groundbreaking as either one. The album was led by the psychedelic sounds from the single, So What You Want. You know you you know you right. The record's blend of punk, funk, and rap went triple platinum. They did two tours to support the album, one with the Rollins Band and one with Cypress Hill. One foot in the rock world, one foot in the rap world. The combination of rapping, DJing, and live instrumentation was a Beastie Boys invention, setting the stage for groups like Korn, Lincoln Park, and Rage Against the Machine. The Beastie Boys had become the ultimate tastemakers and cool hunters. Here's luscious Jackson drummer, Kate Schellenbach. It's a phenomenon how influential they are on almost all aspects of popular culture. Certainly, fashion-wise, anything they wear basically becomes an instant um, youth culture fashion hit. Here's skateboarding legend Tony Hawk.
4: These boys have really brought notice to kind of our culture, you know, like the skate Punk, just the, the whole vibe, and uh, they reached a totally different audience than any of of our interests would have.
6: The Beastie Boys fans range from those of highbrow to lowbrow to low, low, low brow. These
5: guys are good dancers. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was more like them. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. <laughs>
6: According to the Oxford English Dictionary, use of the term mullet to describe the hairstyle was coined and certainly popularized by American hip-hop group the Beastie Boys. Of course, the Beasties didn't invent the actual hairstyle, but it wasn't until the Beastie Boys released their song "Mullet Head" on their next album, Ill Communication, in 1994 that the hairstyle actually gained its name. Ill Communication entered the charts at number one, and the music video for their Edge of Hysteria hit single, Sabotage, was directed by Spike Jones. It was an homage to and parody of 1970s crime drama shows such as Hawaii 5 Beretta, and Starsky and Hutch. Four years later, Hello Nasty hit the stores and again premiered at number one and won them two Grammy Awards. In 2004, their To the Five Burrows album again entered the charts at number one and went platinum. In 2007, the band released The Mix-Up, which was an album that consisted entirely of instrumental tracks. This record won the Beastie Boys another Grammy. Then, following The Mix-Up, Adam MCA Yauch was diagnosed with cancer and underwent treatment. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14th 2012. MCA was too sick to attend the ceremony, having been admitted to the hospital the same day. The following month, Adam MCA Yauk died of cancer at the age of 47. In June 2014, Mike D confirmed that he and Ad Rock would not perform under the Beastie Boys' name again out of respect for MCA. The Beastie Boys spent 27 years in the rap game, selling over 26 million records in the United States and over 50 million worldwide. With one diamond and seven platinum albums, these three Jews from New York City make up the greatest rap group of all time. No other group comes close. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And well done, Greg. And not many bands end because they lose one member. Remember Led Zeppelin folds when John Bonham dies. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org if you like music. Our Arrow on Frank Sinatra, on Tom Petty, Steinway, Les Paul, Vladimir Horowitz, Billy Joel, Glenn Campbell, Merle Haggard, Miles Davis, Chuck Berry. And my favorite, George Martin, the Fifth Beatle. I know, he's British, but the impact the Beatles had on American music, well... They're still having it. This is Lee Habib, the Beastie Boys story here on Our American Stories.